It's worth knowing what's really going on. This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This is Access Atlanta. Every week, we share some of the best places to eat, play, and live out loud in the ATL. And, of course, we go behind the scenes and find the stories that show Atlanta is one of a kind. Welcome to Access Atlanta. I'm your host, Shane Harrison. We've changed the way we do our podcast. That means we're recording it remotely from our homes, but we've also changed what we're talking about in the podcast, since we've always prided ourselves on providing guidance on things to do in and around Atlanta, and because most venues, theaters, and attractions are closed, we're going indoors, and in some cases where it's practical, outdoors to places where it's easy to practice social distancing. When public health officials recommended socially distanced outdoor dining as the safest way to eat at restaurants during the pandemic, food and drink establishments responded by expanding the footprint of their patios and plopping picnic tables in their parking lots. Now, as cooler weather approaches, the AJC's dining team checks in with local restaurants to find out how the business is coping, including efforts to winterize their outdoor spaces. That story is just one part of a major package that looks at dining and how the restaurant business is coping during the pandemic. Dining editor Lagaya Figueres is here to talk about the work she and her team have been doing and to bring us some of the voices from the front lines of the restaurant business. Welcome, Lagaya. Hello, Shane. How are you? I am great. And you? I'm, I'm once again hanging in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that you've been hard at work on this uh, major package that you guys have been doing. Yeah, you know, uh, normally uh, at this time of year, we'd be putting out our fall dining guide. Uh, and we, like everybody else in 2020, have pivoted. And so we wanted to provide some sort of um, package. It's a little bit um, different, but we hoped to, um, you know, really take a kind of a, a bigger look at uh, what restaurants have been going through, but bring it up to, you know, the present. And so we've been doing takeout for a number of months now since March. And um, takeout is something that a lot of people who might have been dining regulars have now incorporated into their maybe weekly, you know, routine. So we look at takeout. Um, We definitely looked at um, frontline, well, not just frontline workers, but um, the restaurant um, employees who who 
have been, in a way, I mean, working on the front lines, but they have been deemed essential workers and, and talking with them about what, how their jobs have, have changed during the pandemic and, and what they face, as well as, you know, we're looking forward as we shift into cooler weather. Um, what are the, the, the next changes that we're going to be seeing? And obviously restaurants are, uh, the operators are taking a look at how they're going to winterize these primo outdoor spaces that everyone wants to eat at, make them comfortable for winter. And some of the things that they're doing interior um, to try to um, help the public feel as safe as possible about the the dining spaces. So yeah, there's a, a you know a number of and we have uh, Wendell Brock also um, is one of the people who wrote for this. Wendell is one of our the other dining critic and he writes also about um, food for us. And Wendell focused on some of the really exciting innovations that we have seen from from restaurants. So yeah, hopefully and and Bob Townsend took a look at the. Um, the brewery side of things and kind of almost have been, if you want to call it the winners and the losers, but um, what folks have done, the, the breweries have done to, to change and um, during, during the pandemic, I mean, we know that some, you know, switched to even making hand sanitizer or whatnot, but, right. um, but, you know, even those guys in terms of uh, canning lines and, and that sort of thing. So we've seen so many changes in um, food and, and beverage this year. And we really wanted to to showcase that. Right. Yeah. So it's like, as you said, you know, they're winners and losers. And a lot of restaurants have closed permanently or changed permanently already. Yeah. I mean, a lot. Yes. A, a fair number of restaurants have closed. And you're seeing that particularly on the um, independent operation side. And we should, we, let's admit, though, there, there have been restaurants that have opened during this right. pandemic. And um, that's been really... Um, Eye-opening to see how they, um, how you attract a dining public at a time when you, the behavior, the protocols, and the you know just the the practices are so different from normal. And I think some of the changes that we're seeing are going to be long-lasting. You know, there are operators that are talking about some of the it's the restaurants are you know it's, they're a lot cleaner than your home kitchen. They're some of the places that have to be the cleanest, and now they're you know to the nth degree. Um, um, safety and hygiene and cleanliness are, are key. And um, so some of these practices that they're implementing, they're probably not going to go away. And that's not necessarily a bad thing either. But um, while we can, you know, mourn um, some of the, the loss of some of our favorite restaurants, I think that what we can get excited about are so many, the innovation, the creativity, and the drive to, to remain in communities and feed people. How restaurants have done this is, um, is really um, exciting, and it's a real testament to, um, to these people who are dedicated um, to the, to their communities and also to their craft. Right. Yeah. And, and I'm excited about the fact that, you know, we'll be able to eat outdoors a lot further into, <laughs> into the winter season. You know, you're, well, you're going to hear a conversation that I had with two, uh, restaurant owners about some of their plans and in the, um, the piece that in the package that was published in the October 11 edition of the paper. And obviously all of these, uh, stories are online as well. Um, when we talk about winterizing, it's really fascinating some of the um, 
the the changes well you know they, they have to be thinking forward but if you thought about it in the summer for example that you're going to need more um you know outdoor patio heaters then you are going to be a lot more on the ball and get that the, the products that you needed because those who are right now you know we're in in mid-october who are looking to purchase heaters it's going to be a lot harder to find Right. Um, same thing when it comes to tenting, for example, and closing these spaces. Um, you know, <laughs> I'm hearing a little bit too about prices, you know, are going up and that kind of thing. So as soon as, just like everything else, supply and demand is dictating a lot of stuff. And um, those who are thinking about it earlier are are going to be coming out, you know, ahead of the game than than those who are not. Awesome. Well, that's great. Well, I this is I, I'm really looking forward to the hearing what uh, we you talked with Wendell and with some of the uh, restaurant owners as well. So we have that uh, to look forward to. Uh, anything else you want to add before we uh, get to that? Well, I think that the last thing, you know, the big question is, are besides winter, what's coming next? And, you know, as we sit here and speak with restaurant owners day in and day out and say, what are you concerned about? I mean, one of the big question marks is going into um, November in uh, December and then into, uh, you know, 2021 is finances. Finances are the big question mark. So, um, you know, they're waiting to see whether or not they're going to get any sort of, um, you know, next round of government funding um, on this. And the the majority that I speak to really feel that it's going to be key to their survival next year. Um, And if it if if it doesn't happen, the question is, you know, will how much longer can they survive and can they really survive on takeout? The answer is probably no. So we'll see. We, but that's a, that, that's, um, you know, the, as many of them say, you know, you take it a day at a time. So yeah. um, hopefully can, that they can um, weather through the winter. Right. Well, that's great. And, and whatever happens, I'm sure that the dining team will be keeping up with all the latest news, uh, closings, openings, changes, and uh, they'll tell you uh, where to get the best takeout too. So um, uh, with that, I'll, We'll be on it. All right. Well, great. Well, let's uh, hear from the rest of the team. Despite the extraordinary upheaval wrought by COVID-19, restaurants have remained an integral part of their communities during the pandemic. Fine dining destinations have learned the art of the takeout. Eateries have adapted their operations to meet COVID-19 safety measures. Chefs have gotten creative with menus while owners have built new revenue streams and used technology to connect with customers at home. Classified as essential workers, restaurant employees continue to perform already demanding jobs under new and more stressful conditions. This time of year, the AJC would normally publish a fall dining guide. Due to the pandemic, we pivoted and created a package with stories that highlight efforts of the Atlanta food and beverage industry to feed communities and provide safe gathering places even as a pandemic drags on. I'm joined now by my fellow dining critic and contributing food writer, Wendell Brock, to talk about the project and the restaurant scene during the age of the coronavirus. Hey, Wendell, how's it going? Hey, look, Gaia, how are you? I'm good. Uh, another day. Here we are. Yeah, at home. yeah that's right. <laughs> We're at home with our takeout. We've had some great food throughout this pandemic, even though I don't know that anyone wishes for us to be in these circumstances. It's certainly been um, an interesting time to be um, a diner at home these days. 
Yeah, it has been. I, I think that we it, at first it was so scary and we, we knew so little about what was going on. And I mean, you know, we thought we could get the virus from touch. So potentially everything, you, you know, even though it was hot food in a bag or a container, you didn't really know. I, I think we've moved beyond that now. When you say um, at the beginning, I was thinking about this big picture in restaurants, and we're going to talk specifically about takeout. But in the beginning, it is so different where we are now compared to in March. When I think of that, there's almost like stages of the takeout where at the beginning, everybody was scrambling, you know, to um, just put something together, places who had never done it before, right? It's like, oh, mm-hmm. They're giving out their own cell number so that people can place orders, scrambling for packaging and sourcing, you know, seeing that there's um, problems with the um, supply chain. And then we saw them go into this, like set up a rhythm almost, right? Where it's like, all right, we got our assembly line going. We know curbside. We can hone the menu. We have an online ordering process. And um, and now, I mean, obviously they're past that and we're into the on-premises dining options. But I do think it's been interesting to watch um, almost stages of um, restaurants as they deal with um, every crisis the pandemic has thrown their way. Yeah. And I also think it's interesting, you know, what re- what restaurants remain that have not reopened their dining rooms. Um, there are not many, but there are some holdouts. Um, we, we had not really planned to go into depth about that and we don't have to, but I was thinking about that the other day. I was like, what places still are not serving in their dining rooms? Right. Um, do you, do you know some right off the bat? Well, I mean, I, I, yeah, I was thinking actually El Ponce, which is, um, um, you know, in, in Midtown from the beginning, they, they've been doing takeout, but well, they closed for a bit, uh, like a lot of places, but they have not reopened their dining room. And as you drive around Atlanta to pick up our takeout, I do, um, you know, stop and look and see, well, you know, who still has a closed dining room, but they're in operating, um, you know, within their takeout. And Oponce is still one of those. And this is, you know, six months later. Um, safety is foremost, you know, in the minds of restaurant owners. And if they don't feel like they can keep their uh, staff safe, um, or their patrons safe, they, they're, um, sticking to their guns and not uh, opening the dining rooms. Yeah. And that's a good thing. And, and there are probably a lot that are still closed that I'm just, you know, not, I, I've, I've made a little list right here as we're talking. I know Talat Markets, Spring and Marietta, Eight Arm has a, has a, a, a little, a little um, separate business outside called Side Piece, but the dining room is closed. There, there, there are plenty of people holding out. So right. it's right. just that things have changed so much. It's like, well, hasn't everybody almost reopened now? Right. But no, not necessarily. And, so. you know, those that have reopened, takeout is still now a big percentage of, um, of their revenue stream. So let's talk about uh, the art of the takeout, you know, in the, uh, the package that we put together, that's one of the, the stories where uh, you, me, um, Bob Townsend and Angela Hansberger offered our picks for um, some of the best takeout that we've enjoyed um, during this time. So do you want to talk about, share some of your, the special highlights for you from, from all of our, our life? As- yeah, I'll be happy to. I've had a lot of very good fried chicken <laughs> um, and I've had a lot of really good Asian and a lot of good Szechuan. Um, 
But, you know, part of it is the stories that you get out of it, as well as the, the, the good food. I mean, I, when I, when the, in March, when, when we had to stop reviewing, I was reviewing this little mom and pop in John's Creek, Great Szechuan, and we had to, we had to pull that review. You know, we could run it. So I checked in with the owner a couple of times and told him we could do a takeout column. And he wasn't, he wasn't quite ready because they weren't, they didn't even have regular hours. But when I went back and, you know, I placed the order and I went in and, and I told him who I was at that point, you know, and he was, he was thrilled. And then after the piece ran, he told me that they'd seen a lot more business and there was a real concern. He and his wife were thinking about closing their, an older couple who've lived, you know, in other parts of the country and moved here. And this was kind of their last hurrah, you know, and, and they felt like that they'd made a big mistake in opening this restaurant well before the pandemic. But, but, you know, they didn't know the area so well. They didn't know how much competition there was. And so that felt good, you know, to think that I, that, that what we wrote, and I don't want to be too, <laughs> too, you know, self-congratulatory here, but it helped them. And, right. and it was a very, it was, it made you feel good. So. Some, you know, when you talk about feel good, that's been a really big part for me as a, a, a takeout lady these days. When it's really special when I get to go to these places to, to pick it up, I really look forward to it. I think one of the things that I miss about restaurants uh, and dining in person is just that connection that, that you feel that sort of community and the experience that they give you. And um, one of my joys is just seeing these folks, whether it's going to be the hostess or maybe the owner is there or, um, you know, the chef. And just to be able to to see that and to see them operating and doing whatever they can to still feed people and make us, you know, happy. And, a time, and it, it, I mean, we really need to to acknowledge, too, this is quite a luxury to be able to to even order takeout. Um but, but it's been, it's heartwarming. One of my favorite moments, I have to tell you, is um, when I went to pick up my order at Porchlight Latin Kitchen, and this was fairly early um, in the pandemic, and I did name Porchlight Latin Kitchen my favorite overall experience, but Andre Gomez was there, you know, and he's just greeting people, making the place as safe as possible. They had quite the, um, the, uh, the setup going in terms of, you know, assembly line type stuff. But his daughter was the one who was writing happy notes to customers on all of these takeaway packages. And I think that some of the little touches that restaurants have done in that way of just their, their way to say thank you for supporting us, whether they're writing a little note that they tuck inside or, you know, just, again, scrawling something on, um, on the packaging itself, uh, they're touching they are, yes. I've seen some of that too. Um, I remember going to poor Hendrix on a very rainy day, and you know, a storm, a stormy day. I mean, we had, you know, we have, we've had a lot of crazy weather this year, and and the bag I got, which I still have, was you know, pictures of clouds and you know, great funny thing of things about Wendell's takeout, and I don't think they knew I was from the paper, you know. I don't, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure they did not. That's just what they were doing. You know, right. they right. love doing that. And right. there was, there was a spark, you know, I got, it was handed to me through a window, but there was still like a, a spark and an energy coming out of that. That was very, right. well, and, it made me want to go back, you know? Yeah, for sure. And a lot yeah. of people, I mean, I hear from restaurant owners that they have um, some customers who support them multiple times 
a week. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why they might change up their menus lightly weekly, just adding a, some sort of special to, you know, keep the kitchen, um, you know, the creative minds turning there, but also to give the regulars a taste of something new when they're going back to the same place, you know, week in and week out. You know, the other, the other one I wanted to mention, particularly, it's been really um, neat to see restaurants stay true to their concept um, while pivoting to the takeout scene and Bacchanalia, you know, and it's fine dining is especially where we're seeing this because uh, takeout was never part of, you know, um, the, the original model. But I think what Anquitrano did in doing this reimagined tasting menu to bring home, it's so elegant and graceful and it's all boxed up, super fancy. And, you know, that they they did the best job that they could to try to bring, that experience and help you to recreate that at home. It just takes so much thought and care. And I think that, you know, she gets kudos for, for what she's done there. Do you have other ones that were, that felt like, wow. These yes. are, these yeah. What yes. do you think? I mean, the place I'll go to again and again, and almost every category is spring and Marietta. And there's also an interesting kind of backstory there about the chef, Brian. So who was planning to open He's Korean-American, and he had planned to open a traditional Korean tofu house on the square of Marietta and use big, you know, flashy signage. Uh, that didn't work out, but since he's had to switch to takeout, he's, he, you know, in, in so many ways. I mean, he's he's being innovative. He's doing a lot of meals that people can buy and cook later at home. Uh, he's not doing so much hot food. There's a, there's a hot meal every week, but he's also explored his Korean side. Um, I didn't have his Korean food. I, again, I had his fried chicken. <laughs> it was so good. I mean, you know, and the, the, everything he touches from the hot sauce to the biscuits, to the bread, to the butter, everything he makes by hand. Everything, the, the hot sauce was made in-house. The ice cream was made in-house. And he had this glorious peach tart that became, you know, an Instagram sensation. Another food outlet here wrote a story about that peach tart. It was, it was fantastic. Um, so those kinds of things, you, you, you remember those. Um, and I will also say it's, it's kind of it goes back to something you were talking about, about people having loyal customers. I don't think some of our fine dining restaurants would be in business if they didn't have those loyal customers because their 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 food is very expensive. Well, when you talk about, you know, fine dining restaurants, yes, in terms of how you know expensive they are and can people afford it or not, one of the shifts that we saw um that's been so fascinating and really is a big story is um Stable House and I was able to um feature them um, I don't know, maybe six weeks or so ago in, in, for our Atlanta orders in. And now Stable House, you know, they were known because as a, not just fine dining, but, you know, yes, you have the, it's a fixed price menu. It's your, when you go there, that's a special occasions place. And um, Ryan Smith and his wife, Kara Heidinger, you know, they really sat down and at, during the pandemic and, and really thought it out of, well, what do we want to be? They, I mean, they didn't open up for quite some time after first serving as a, um, a soup kitchen for restaurant workers. But when he did reopen, it was like, this is not going to be the same staple house. 
And he's focusing on, um, you know, what the new concept is going to be now going forward. And that is smoked meats, gorgeous, very thoughtful vegetable dishes, which is something that they did, you know, before. And then um, uh, homemade or from scratch tortillas and really getting into the art of nixtamalization. So from there, gosh, those tortillas were phenomenal. And um, but you think about quite the shift, that's going to be so much more affordable than um, a staple house experience that we would have thought of, you know, nine months ago. Yeah. I mean, when the pandemic first started, I was, you know, was thinking, are are people going to be able, are chefs going to be able to continue the tasting menu concept? Are are you going to still go to a, a chef's counter and sit down and have a very intimate experience? I think, you know, I was expecting that to change. And I think they're, ex- they're an example of somebody who said maybe that no, no, that no longer works for us. Right. So we have well, to change. But there are, other, there are other chefs who are that as part of their DNA. They continue to do that. They want to do that. And I think that they should do that. If that is their passion, go for it. You may well, not see me well, sitting at a chef's counter anytime soon. Right. But, you know, go for it. The experience um, is available if they want it. Now, Georgia... Yeah. Yeah, Georgia Boy and Southern Belle, Joey Ward, I mean, he's trying to fit, he has figured out a way to do that chef's counter safely. They're doing it in the back patio. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't say that I have, you know, gone for that experience, but he has tried his best to, to with the, the say all of the safety protocols in place to give folks that experience that he, that, that they provided before the pandemic. Yeah, and Lazy Betty continues as a tasting menu concept. There, you cannot order a la carte at Lazy Betty. I think I'm pretty sure that they've restarted the chef's counter. Now they have plexiglass panels between the diners and the kitchen. You know, there, there's there's all kinds of safety measures in place, and 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 diners are not crowded next to each other. Each other, obviously, um, but. You know, he wanted he wanted to do that. So you might have and I can't speak for the numbers, but you might have, you know, two or three people sitting at the bar one night versus 10. I don't know. Now, Wendell, are there any other innovations that you've seen? I know you wrote about a few um, for the story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's one that I think is so clever and he's he's so smart. He's such a great entrepreneur. It's uh, Takashi Atsuka who owns Wagaya. They're two restaurants by that name. They're kind of, they're all in one Japanese restaurants that do sushi and ramen. And then he had, had fairly recently opened an upscale sake robata pairing restaurant called Chirori on 14th street. Now when the pandemic hit, you know, I was concerned. He he could not continue to operate that place because it was it it, it was not conducive to takeout. So he closed Chirori and did takeout from both his other places. But he had this huge, um, you know, s- seller of sake of upscale expensive sake. So he started, I think, selling that and Japanese beer. He you know he had a space there, and he threw in a other a few other excuse a, a few other you know goods market goods and and it did okay but what he realized was that 
people were staying at home and they were cooking at home and they were looking for basic ingredients. So long story short, <laughs> he opened a, a small Japanese grocery store in the basement of Wagaya. And it's, it has, if you want to make sushi at home, if you want to make okonom, okonomiyaki at home, which I just did, a little plug for my recipe story coming out next week. You know, I went in there, he gave me a lesson on how to make okonomiyaki and then we went downstairs and I got all the ingredients <laughs> and were they a little bit more than Buford Highway or, or Duluth probably but there's a convenience factor and there are a lot of people in his neighborhood and there are people he told me he had people who were just interested in Japanese culture who drove in from Macon and had a had a had lunch at the restaurant and then went down downstairs and went shopping I think he's very clever to do that. When he, if you told me that, a, that somebody could open a Japanese grocery store on 14th Street in Midtown and be very successful, I would, before the pandemic, I don't know. I don't know if that would have worked or not. Right. It, seemed a, it seemed a little kooky, but he's done He's done very well. Yeah, that's really cool. People are cooking at home. So I just think that's, that's a yeah, great story. Yeah, that is a great story. Um, you know, for me, when I think about innovations right now, um, and it's because it crosses over, not just from takeout, but also into um, the on-premises dining situation. Technology has been so key. I mean, not only have these guys really scrambled to put online ordering, um, you know, with, from, with their websites and whatnot, but um, I am getting pings on my, you know, text messages on my phone, these automated stuff <clears> that it's you know your order's been received and then I'll get another text message that your were you know your order is we're working on your order right now and then the last text message of your order's ready and, and this happened with Redbird when I got that order the other day Redbird over in um Westside Provisions District um one of the things I mean it's these chefs are want us to have the food um at the optimal time you know normally it's like okay it's hot expedite that, get that out. And, and the fact that they're trying this hard to give us the food in the best possible condition, um, to me, it's touching, but I really, I, I, who would have thought a year ago that I'd be getting text messages from, you know, a pretty upscale restaurant telling me that, you know, on my phone here, you're ready, your order's ready for pickup. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. I think uh, this is probably a good time to just talk a little bit about some of the safety protocol that, um, you know, that we're seeing all around us that restaurants have to follow. Um, and those things that make us perhaps feel safer as we venture inside them or, you know, or curbside or whatever to, to pick it up. Um, what kind of thoughts do you have about restaurant safety right now? What's been making you feel safe when um, you're going to a restaurant to get your, your food? Um, well, I mean, first of all, I mean, restaurants are required, right, to their, their front of house, front of house staff has to wear a mask, right? So if you if your front of house people are not wearing masks, then no deal. We're not. I'm not going in there. Um, you you have to you have to wear a mask. I feel feel better about restaurants that are requiring their customers to enter the restaurant wearing a mask 
and wear it as necessary as they move around the room or go to the restroom. I think that's pretty basic. I, I, I'm, I'm all in favor of that. I endorse that. Um, uh, what about you? <laughs> I mean, it's ma- it's mask or nothing, you know, mask, mask or death with me. So. And I mean, you know, in learning about what uh, the different scenarios that a, an on-premises diner is going to come across, I do think that it's a very good um, practice that if you're sitting down at a table, even though you don't have to put your mask on, that when that server comes around, that you do the courtesy of putting the mask on, that everybody is masked for the safety of that server. Yeah. Um, I think that that would be um, a very wise and um, courteous thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I know that they are not mandated to wear masks at the back of the house. Most of the restaurant owners that I've been speaking with these days Everybody is wearing masks, but it's you don't have to at the back of the house. But I mean, we understand that that uh, and it's hot back there and, you know, you're in tighter quarters. Um, I am feeling better about the places who are telling me that even staff at the back of the house is wearing a mask. Yeah, yeah, I know. I agree with that. Um, And then, you know, there's this debate about indoor outdoor um, and, and you can speak to that if you want to, but I mean, uh, for a lot of obvious reasons, people want to eat outside. And I will say when I've done my takeout, I've been to a couple of places and I've observed their patios. Spacing was fantastic. You know, it had a very good feeling. And I, even though I haven't had done any, uh, indoor or patio dining, I thought, hmm, you know, this, I can see coming here and having a drink and, you know, it seemed, it felt right. The other thing, though, is that was an intuitive feeling. It wasn't science. If I go into a place, and I don't think this has happened maybe once, but maybe, you know, you got you to gotta also think about maybe I'm overthinking this. You know, <laughs> maybe I'm, I'm just in a, a little overly anxious here. But if I were theoretically to go into a small, crowded place and people were not wearing masks and the ceiling was low, I would turn, out, turn around and walk out as I as I've already said. Yeah, I mean, we, we, I don't think we should, we can just focus on on the mass side of things. I completely agree with you that um, uh, restaurants that are enabling social distancing, where um, the, spa- the tables are spaced, um, you know, far apart, far, well, I mean, they're supposed to be six feet apart, but I think we even have to think about this of, in the back of my chair, if I'm at one table, and the back of your chair, I never want to come within six feet of you. And so, if all the if a restaurant is only measuring from table to table, you're they're not taking into consideration the fact that the back of your chair is going to come closer to mine when you move away. So, those that have really tried to give the breathing space, um, I, I'm feeling more comfortable in those settings. And those have really done a great job of enabling traffic flow. So entrance and egress, the small is if those can be separate, right? And that they're really, sometimes, you know, sometimes it's going to be floor signage or whatnot. The things that direct you um, to how to move about the restaurant so that we're not just, um, there's we're not all hitting these choke points and, and getting, um, um, yeah. No, stuck kind of thing. Yeah, that's so. right. And another thing as far as the indoor-outdoor debate, there, there are places where you can sit outdoors, 
But come on. I mean, the tables are jammed together. People aren't wearing masks. Um, that doesn't make me feel good. So not all outdoor is good is, I think, a legit, legitimate point. Use your eyes. I mean, I've, I've, I've seen places where and I, and I may have seen places a little several weeks ago before or a couple of months ago before people got strict about wearing masks. But places are perfectly great restaurants where I love the food, you know, happy to go get their takeout. But then you look down at the kind of the public space and it it seems like spring break party time to me. And I don't want to, I, I'm not going to hang out there. I'm going to get my food and go. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think we have to, we have to acknowledge that there's just drive around and you'll, you'll see that. And you Mm -hmm. can, without naming names, you know, you can make the call. Right. Um, well, You're going to see me having margaritas there. <laughs> as part of the package, we did um, include uh, sort of a kind of a Q&A explainer, but about um, um, restaurant safety and also dining etiquette. And I mean, at the end of the day, dining out or even doing takeout, that's going to be a choice. And really, one has to assess whether or not you should eat out. Um, and and the restaurant setting that's right for you. And absolutely, you know, I, if you have eyes, take a look around and, and assess um, your risk and the risk that you think that you might be entering into. And um, it's not a bad idea to be doing your research before you go. That can mean, you know, looking on websites um, to learn about a restaurant protocol or giving a phone call, finding those questions out. And if you don't feel that the answers that you're getting back are ones um, to that that are um, make you feel safe enough, then then you don't go. All right. Well, hey, um, keep enjoying your takeout. Uh, I'll enjoy mine. Keep taking some fabulous pictures. It's been fun. I enjoy it. It's, yep. uh, yeah, you're right, though. It is a privilege. And uh, okay. yeah. All right. Until next time. Okay. Take care. Thank you so much, Lagaya. You bet. Bye. During the pandemic, safety has been a guiding principle in the decision-making of restaurant owners. I'm joined now by two Atlanta operators, Tom Murphy and Dave Green, to discuss their approaches to keeping staff and guests safe. Tom is the proprietor of 30-year-old Murphy's Restaurant in Virginia Highland, and Dave runs the Select in Sandy Springs and Paces and Vine in Vining. Justin, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. All right, so let's begin by talking about the positions that you both took early on in the pandemic regarding um, recognizing the severity of the virus and the extent that it would likely be with us for quite some time. I mean, I might call both of you kind of early adopters in terms of your strategic planning to think through how you were going to reopen your restaurant safely for on-premises dining. And Dave, I spoke with you in late spring, I remember, when you were preparing to reopen the select. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the plans that you made, the changes to the operating procedures, uh, even the physical changes to the dining spaces, and also why you went to the extent that you did to to sort of, I guess, some folks might say, let me do it right. Gotcha. Um, for physical 
for the physical plant, what we changed was uh, the first thing we did was obviously take out a bunch of tables so we could do socially distance as we were being uh, required to by by CDC and, and the health department and, and, and the governor's office. And so we did that, but we felt like we had some time because we had decided to shut down for three weeks just because there was so much uncertainty in the marketplace. We just didn't want to be, seem like, you know, we're just going to stay in this no matter what. So we shut down for three weeks and built uh, dividers out of plexiglass and, and wood, and we built them in such a way they weren't real invasive, but they were there and they felt very safe. Um, so that was the first physical thing that we did. The second thing that we did was we got uh, later, much later, we got the UVC uh, put into our uh, air conditioners, our air handlers, so that it helps to sanitize the air. Um, even though we have really, really high 15-foot ceilings, we knew that, that that is something that's going to become a big issue. And I know Tom has done some really great things with his AC as well. Um, and so uh, after that, then we also put a sanitizer on every table, masks on all the employees, and we implemented a glove-changing policy. So every time a server uh, picks up a dirty plate, walks into the kitchen, takes the dirty glass into the kitchen, they take off of their gloves, and then they sanitize their hands again. And then when they walk back into the dining room, they, they start the next color. So that's a sequence of colors, and there's five different colors. So every time that the server uh, goes to a table, the guests may, may notice or may not, but if they're really concerned, at least you can say, oh, yeah, I, we've been changing our gloves. And we do it all the time. As a matter of fact, we have a program, so it, it, it registers into the mind of the guests that we're being that much more safe. Uh, we also take temperatures at the front door of every guest, every employee, and every um, uh, vendor or so forth that comes in throughout the day. Um, as far as why uh, we've done all these things, it's because it was very obvious uh, in the restaurant industry for everyone, all of us, uh, unless you're in, unless you're in uh, quick service. Uh, you know, on drive-throughs and so forth. This really just hammered the, the economy. Our entire livelihoods were under threat. And so everybody felt that we needed to do all we could. And certainly the guests, uh, there's, a, there's a certain segment that is still very, very concerned about it, and some of them are not. So we addressed in the hospitality industry, I know Tom feels the same way, you take the worst case scenario, you're, get, you're making sure that those situations are, are part of what your program is. And so um, you know, we were just responding to the fear and the, the reality in the marketplace that people weren't coming out and they weren't spending money, and we had to encourage that. Okay. Tom, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you did at Murphy's? Yes. Uh, again, Dave being really a uh, front runner and uh, set a pace, and I think what we decided, we were able to uh, investigate and research and find the Synexus air filtration system, which was used as a device in embassies to, um, after 9-11 with anthrax, uh, it was developed so people could actually be in a facility and it would be a uh, sort of a, a contaminant reduction, uh, an elimination system while people were actually in the, in the space. And what it was is this um, chemist developed it, its dry peroxide particles that are able to sanitize not only the air, but everything the air touches. So it, it reduces and eliminates uh, SARS and the COVID and uh, bacteria mold. Uh, Chipotle had done um, studies with it for five years prior. And so we were fortunate that as the only independent uh, in Georgia to be able to implement it in our restaurant, it was very expensive, but 
over the, you know, since we put it in, they've come in monthly and tested, and it has just reduced all um, parasites and, and elimination of, of uh, type of bacteria and mold that exists in the air. So that was number one because it, it's the unseen, right? We didn't know what COVID was was when the when it first uh, broke out. So in addition, we did the six feet separation and, and like Dave with the gloves. Now not the um, total glove changing that he did. We've all learned since then, um, but more of the gloves, the six feet uh, changing uh, of spacing, uh, the. Uh, the ability to uh, enlarge our patio so we could have extra space for more spacing um, and just how we handle tables uh, in terms of what we put on the tables and sanitation, uh, the restrooms, touchless uh, restrooms were, were very big, and not only the guests, but also the employees. We uh, renovated our employee restroom, make it all touchless um, with UV lighting inside and um, just extra precautionary all the way through we, even in the in the kitchen, um, we put an air filtration system and, and a better airflow system. Uh, we added additional filtration and airflow into our kitchen to create more positive pressure, uh, just to create balance for airflow because it was necessary with uh, the, the Synexus system. So looking at every uh, component of how we handle food all the way through to the guest interaction, to the employee interaction, uh, taking temperatures of guests as well as the staff on a daily basis. Um, and so, and you know, even now there's some opportunity where COVID testing with the employees on a weekly basis is starting to come to the forefront that we're very excited about uh, to put in place to ensure even further um, awareness of the well-being of our guests, uh, not our, our guests, but our employees for the benefit of our guests. So it's a, it's a, it's a balance on all levels. Right, and Tom, when, you know, you mentioned the Synexus and that it was um, a, a substantial, um, had substantial cost. When you think of it, can you tell us, and like, what, what, how, how much are you talking here? And in total, can you even guesstimate um, how much you have spent so far because of the pandemic um, in terms of the, the safety costs here? Easily, well, just the Synexus system is 20000 plus. Um, but in addition to all the other things, we have probably about sixty-five to seventy thousand dollars of reinvestment into the restaurant um, to just make it a safer place for our staff and our guests. Right. Wow. So now we're heading into, you know, we're in October here, and we can't stop winter from coming. I know I've spoken with both of you for actually a story that um, we wrote for our uh, recent dining package about preparations for winter, and I know that you're both preparing for the advent of cold weather. I mean, there's going to be, there's a serious amount of spending um, that, you're, that you're both doing to make your outdoor spaces more comfortable, too. Can you each talk about them, some of your winter plans, Dave? Let's go ahead and start with you. Sure. Um, uh, obviously, everybody's was trying to buy heaters. They became very scarce and we were very fortunate to have, uh, I think you spoke with Eric Brenner over at Authentique and he was mm -hmm. able to find some, uh, some really great heaters, the sun glow heaters, uh, for us. And, uh, they're, they're amazing. Actually, I'm, I'm super impressed with them. I almost wish I didn't order the rest of the bromic heaters already because it's, uh, it, it's working so well. Um, but they give off not only heat, but then there's a, there's an element up top that, that develops a, a red glow and it gives off infrared heat, which goes right through the wind. So that's number one. Um, number two, we obviously uh, originally because of the sun and so forth, we built in big umbrellas. And I know Tom has done that as well here. 
Um, so it, heating was the number one thing for patios um, to keep them uh, as, as uh, warm as possible. Um, let's see, we, we also have, uh, as far as the spending on this, <clears throat> what Tom was telling you before, uh, so we've spent about $20,000 just on the heaters, and that's one restaurant and about $4,000, $5,000 on, on heaters for the other restaurant. But we're also having other operating costs, and I know Tom is too, and that is uh, we have hand sanitizers. we got to buy the gloves. That's $500 a week in our restaurant. Um, you know, we have uh, every step of the way, whether it's sanitizers on the tables or in the bathrooms and so forth. Uh, we also have a cleaning service that comes in, and they – do the electrostatic uh, spray that I think Tom is similar to what Tom right. does and blows it through. Exactly. So but we, that's, we do it as a service and it sterilizes it once a week kind of a thing. And then so um, there's a lot of expenses that I think that people need to be aware of that restaurants are incurring right now, not to mention how much does it cost to fill up those propane tanks every, every two, three days. Right. right. Um, so there's, there's so many different expenses and uh, we're already operating in a business that's a small, that's not a huge margin business, but under the circumstances of COVID, it's literally like we're just surviving. And so then we have this immense, I think Tom mentioned this in the article, you have this immense amount of ex- added expense all the way around. So um, it's it's a very tenuous time in the restaurant industry, but uh, it's also been uh, the source of a lot of inspiration. So hopefully we're going to get right. some place. Right. Well, you know, one of the things um, that I thought I didn't bring up on um, Eric Brenner from Authentique, who um, you purchased your heaters from, when he talk, spoke with me, he said everybody's chasing inventory. They're chasing inventory. Um, and some of these things are getting hard to find, just like hand sanitizer, for example, was um, really tricky to find PPE, you know, at the beginning in terms of getting, making sure that your folks have masks. One, I mean, they, you, you, Dave, in particular, were ahead of the game, and and right now we're gonna we're seeing a lot of folks scrambling, looking for for heating sources that, and even tents that might not be available. I mean, how much are you both constantly thinking about what's the next thing? Because you you have to be thinking not just tomorrow, but down the road. Yes, you know, um, in in that scenario, uh, Dave was ahead of me. Uh, on hitting those heaters, and so in, in going to Authentique and another um, uh, supplier, both were at a situation where when I initially uh, requested a, a price, it was two, three weeks out, and then when I finally got, when they got back to me, they said it was eight weeks out, and so uh, there was, like, we went from, oh, great, to, oh, oh no, right, and so mm-hmm. uh, this is an issue, and so one of the things that Murphy's we had to do is we're we're looking at maybe even you know like with Dave's done with the plastic dividers is looking at maybe creating some windshield around the patio to create a little bit more of enclosure. I'm not going to put uh, a tent over the patio. Um, we do have part of our patio is already tented and heated, so we have sort of a, a dual patio. But more importantly, you know back to what Dave was talking about the the need to be inventive. Our dining room at Murphy's has always had glass doors that accordion open that make you, and it was designed to feel like a Virginia Highland porch. So though it, it, we, it's semantic, we won't call it a patio, but because we added additional heaters into our restaurant for COVID for the Synexa system and creating positive pressure um, in that big expense of the 70000 we're going to use some of the extra heaters as we get them, but until we get them, just opening the, the patio doors on our restaurant 
creates a patio feel. So we get all the flow of the air from outside, and we also get, you know, the Synexus is still working. And so we're, we're sort of going to have to, you know, be inventive about how we use the present situation until our heaters come. But we're fortunate that it just in, as a happenstance that we have a dining room of patio, so to speak, porch, uh, that sort of meets that same existence as if you had a, um, a patio and put a tent on it and put heaters in it. It's now more of a porch, and that's what we've already got on our uh, premise. So mm-hmm. we're going to utilize some of these things that already exist for us, fortunately. Um, and, you know, in pivoting for COVID when it first happened, like Dave, we closed. But because we have uh, valet, we're able to use that as pickup quickly for, for Murphy's takeout. And, uh, you know, by removing the bar stools right in front, we were able to, to create an easy access for people to pick up food and, and take out or, or to have just drive up and have the valet take it to them. So it's looking at your resources and uh, sources available at, the, at, at that moment and making the best of it. And we've been blessed, uh, really blessed by that opportunity. But the heaters are coming. The investments are there. It's just now, like you said, resources and timing. And I know, Tom, you've invested so much in, in your um, microbial reduction system, but how do you convince the public that it's safe to eat inside? I think what you're doing right now with this uh, podcast is how we do it. We have to keep communicating uh, the message, and we have to promote it. And that is everything uh, is for um, – the media to recognize those that are making that investment and not just talking about the negativity of dining, but, but promoting the positivity of dining in the uh, operators that are creating the environments uh, that their community uh, love, need, and want. And, and so uh, it's that constant commitment to promoting uh, what we're doing. And we have always been community servants, Dave and myself and the operators are still out there, you know, fighting to survive, we're, we're community servants, and this is what we do, and we just need the media to be on the positive side of that, as you're doing, and, and sharing all the investment and commitment, personal commitment we're doing to try to make our value guest community still the place to socialize and, and, and be able to get out and have a good experience. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank both of you for sharing so much um, insight with us and best of luck with your businesses, uh, your staff, and your families. Everybody stay safe and healthy. Wash your hands. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. appreciate you bringing this message to, to your listeners. Thanks so much. There's nothing normal about our new normal, but AJC.com is the same trusted source you've always had. And we have just as much great content, if not more. That's why each week I'll highlight my personal picks for the best things to do, see, and experience. And the stories are easy to find on AJC.com. October 31st will fall on a Saturday night with a full moon and an extra hour of sleep the next morning because of the end of daylight saving time. It could have been the best Halloween ever, but that's all changed. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention gave Halloween the thumbs down, describing as higher risk any traditional trick-or-treating where treats are handed to children who go door-to-door. Stay home, says the CDC. Decorate the house and stage a virtual costume contest online. Some municipalities have said the same thing. Find out where and how things have changed for this most unusual Halloween in Bo Emerson's story on the Things to Do page at AJC.com. 
Without outlets like galleries and especially the annual festivals that showcase their work, folk artists are among those feeling the pain of the pandemic. In March, COVID-19 forced galleries to shutter their doors, and then, one by one, the big festivals, including Fensterfest in Somerville, announced they were canceling their gatherings. Find out how artists and collectors are coping with the changes in a story from freelance writer Candace Dyer at AJC.com. There may not be many movies being released to theaters these days, but some are still hitting the big screen. Honest Thief arrives in movie theaters this weekend. The action thriller provides Liam Neeson yet another opportunity to embody a character with demons inside of him while offering enough countervailing empathy and warmth to make him likable, no matter how violent he gets. Rodney Ho spoke with Neeson and his co-star Kate Walsh about the movie, and you'll find his interview on the radio and TV talk blog at AJC.com. In addition to all of their work on the project that looks at how restaurants are coping these days, the dining team continues to explore some of the best in takeout with the Atlanta Orders In feature, which you'll find in print in the living section most weekdays. One of the places they recently visited is Gatto in Candler Park, a personal favorite of mine. Chef Nicholas Stenson crafts some of the most magical and creative Mexican cuisine in town. You'll find out what Wendell Brock had to say about the restaurant's takeout menu and read up on all the places the team has visited on the Atlanta Restaurant Scene blog at AJC.com. To get the AJC delivered or to subscribe to the e-paper, go to AJC.com slash subscribe. For more things to do in and around Atlanta, go to AJC.com. Our senior editor is Nicole Smith, podcast edited by Bria Felicien. Music by Bo Emerson and Billy Guen, And I'm your host, Shane Harrison. Join us next week for more Access Atlanta. Ocean Breeze. Tropical Beach, Pina Colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on.